Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watts and as usual I am not joined by Callum Roper. Hello there everyone, once again. And Bradley Alsop. Hi there folks. So, Super Saturday has passed and the streets have been full of uh, revellers enjoying the uh, well, the effective end of the lockdown or the easing, as the government's called it, uh, for better or worse. Uh, we're going to talk today about whether or not uh, drunk people can socialise and whether or not uh, the blame is being deliberately targeted at the people for a potential, actually quite likely, second wave of the coronavirus. Uh, We're also going to talk about the furlough scheme, one of the most successful elements, uh, to be fair to them, of the uh, government's response to the coronavirus scheme, which ends at the end of July. It pays 80% of um, most workers' wages, Um, but it is going to end soon. Uh, And finally, we're going to talk about the local impacts on COVID, how the uh, high street is going to recover uh, investment in public transport uh, and regeneration and so on. So uh, to start off with, uh, we're going to talk about uh, what happened this weekend. Um, People had, there were pictures of people queuing up outside of Weatherspoons. some people were quite sneering about it. People were quite critical. Um, there was a notable uptick in the number of fights. Um, having worked in uh, that industry myself, I have to say, I, I didn't go out on, on Saturday uh, myself. Um, so I don't know how many people were there, but if the attendance was to the pubs was lower than it would be normally one one factor that actually does happen on nights like that is actually it's it's easier to get to the bar and so people end up drinking more because they don't have to queue um so combine that with several months of not drinking very much um you can imagine how uh that might have had a a more of an impact on people um but what was uh, your reaction bradley uh to this saturday do you think it went well, uh, do you think it was a was a good thing, or or is this an unmitigated disaster that's going to lead to a second wave? It could be, it could go either way, couldn't it? Well, it, it, it's probably somewhere in the middle. I think. Um, it, I I don't think it was the correct decision to to allow pubs to reopen. Um, it, it it seems quite clear that those fears were pretty well founded. If you if you look at some of the images going around um, social media, but also you know the sort of images running on BBC News and stuff. Um, Police chiefs have come out and said, quite laughably, they've said, you know, it, it, drunk people can't socially distance, and and you know, it doesn't really take a genius or much foresight to see that that would have been the result of this. Um, if you let people that have, have by and large been cooped up for three months out to to get drunk and see their friends again for the first time in months, um, it, you know, after a few pints, the any sort of attempts to properly socially distance are just going to go out of the window, um, and, and you know. Some of that will be the, the fault of individuals. Some some people uh, are, are being careless about things, but but also you know the the government would have known that this would have happened. Um, it it doesn't take a genius to figure out that that that's going to be the inevitable result of opening pubs again. 
Um, so I, th- I think we will see a rise in cases um, and we will see a rise in the transmission of COVID because of it. Um, how bad and how long that will be, um, I suppose, remains to be seen. Yeah, I think one of the um, most ridiculous pieces of advice was the uh, the advice that people shouldn't sit face to face in a pub. Um, <laughs> that I, I mean, this government is well known for trolling the public, but that's just S tier S tier stuff. No, you can go to the pub, but you're not allowed to talk to anyone. Basically, completely bizarre. What did you think, Callum? Well, I thought. Basically, what what this weekend was a, was a giant PR stunt from this government. I think that the the whole thing about getting the nation's morale up is exactly what this was about. And you know, people being able to go back to the pub, people being able to go and get their pint and see their mates again, it, it makes them feel like we're on the way out. We're uh, you know, the government's doing great if we're already back in the pubs, already being able to go out for meals and socialize. But it's, it's extremely dangerous. I think they are playing with fire here. And, you know, it's just a case of, personally, I think it's a case of when, not if, we get a second spike. Because, rightly so, the police chief saying uh, drunk people cannot socially distance. Um, you know, and we've seen some of the pictures, I believe it was in Soho. that it was It was packed. Pubs, bars, the streets were packed with people because they can't socially distance. Some places... Um, you know, trying their best to mitigate the risk, but you can't mitigate the risk of alcohol and intoxication. That, that's something that you can't really stop if you're going to open up the pubs, unless you're going to give people tokens and say, ration out the beer and say you can only have one pint and then you're on your merry way. Um, but I don't think that will work. And I don't think the government would even consider that because, as I say, it's a PR stunt. It's about making people feel good. And potentially it's also about putting the risk of a second wave away from government responsibility and into the hands of the general public. Yeah, absolutely. There's a strong possibility that is exactly what they're planning to do. Um, At the end of the day, I, I, I think we need to be quite careful in the way that we talk about this, because we did see at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of the uh, COVID event, uh, that a lot of people were um, being quite dismissive of people who weren't obeying social distancing and so on. There was a very big social kind of uh, stigma attached um, to going outside. Um, to some extent, that's justified because obviously it's a it's a public health thing, uh, of course. But also, um, there is clearly uh, a legitimate attempt by the government to shift the blame, as, as Callum just said, um, from themselves to the public. So that when we do get a second wave, uh, they can the government can say, well, I mean, we opened up the economy. We said you should follow common sense, but you didn't follow common sense. Um, but what people did do is they, they followed human nature. Um, and just put yourself in the shoes of, of, of someone who or perhaps not even put yourself in the shoes. You may be this person, you know. Um, a lot of people you know, your group of friends, have decided that it's it's Super Saturday. We're going to go out to the pub. None of us have had COVID-19. Maybe um, we've already had COVID-19 and recovered from it or whatever. What, for whatever reason you think you're clear, uh, we're going to go down to the pub and celebrate. 
how easy is it going to be for people to say no? Um, and unless you have uh, a an authority that's telling you that you can stay at home, your le- legal sort of legitimate excuse to, uh, to socially distance at home is gone. Um, do you, what do you think, Callum? Do you think this is this is going to be a, a factor in uh, forcing people to sort of go out and socialise? And is this the return ultimately of uh, uh, herd immunity strategy? I, I would say that it certainly would feed into this idea of a herd immunity. The fact that you're right that so many people they I'm not saying that they're alcoholics, but you know their life rotates around the pub being able to meet their friends there being able to meet work colleagues there being able to just you know have a drink in peace maybe watch the football you know a lot of people's lives rotate around the pub so by opening it up you're basically saying life is returning back to normal and therefore social distancing they're saying it's now one meter plus when you're in the pub so that's already half what we've had before bringing people closer and closer um, plus in the, the the factor of alcohol. And what you're getting is effectively a lifting of social distancing within the pub setting. I, I suppose the other question is, when are we going to see a second wave? I, I'm genuinely wondering if, if we're actually going to know when we've had it. And, you know, the, the government aren't doing their daily press briefings um, like, like they were. Uh, and they're not putting as much effort into testing as they were a few weeks ago either you know not not that they ever really got got to the the point where they said they were going to with testing so uh, i suppose my worry now is actually are we going to know when the second wave hits us or not well i don't think so because we haven't uh, uh, i mean i've done a covid test um it got sent to me by epsis mori um but i don't know many people who have i think the test and trace system is it's a bit janky um there isn't a working app as as uh, as Keir Starmer sort of exposed in, in in parliament um so what do we think is going to happen if we do get that second wave um do you think that people having gone out to the pub and started to enjoy the summer do you think people will find it credible if and when the government decides to shut everything down again, Callum? Well, I, I have a fear that once the floodgates are open, they, they'll stay open. People will essentially have had enough of lockdown, they would have had enough of social distancing, they would have had enough of not being able to see their loved ones. And if the government especially if they're not releasing stats every day or having daily press conferences, uh, are not showing the severity of a, of, a second, of a second spike, of a second wave, then there is the potential that people will just ignore it. And, you know, put, I think the current approach now is to use local lockdowns as opposed to a national lockdown. But potentially we could essentially have this whack-a-mole that they described but they're just going to be whacking one down and another spike's going to go up until we have a vaccine. And I think that that's really dangerous because these local lockdowns, you're still able to effectively move around the country. It's just shops and pubs and all the rest of it are not open in that local area. So there's no, there's no reason to say, well, we won't 
we won't get a, uh, a second spike if people stay indoors. We will get a second spike if people go back to normal and don't follow the advice and listen to the government sometimes as well, which is the unfortunate thing. I think it's a very good a very good point actually the um the local lockdowns i can't believe that boris johnson called it a whack-a-mole strategy because that that's that's that sounds like something we would use to describe what they're doing in a in a derogatory sense because it is stupid um you know uh, i think fauci the uh the the um the chief scientific advisor in america he's got a different title um but you know, widely praised across the world and in the United States for for his personal response to the uh, to the crisis, if not his government. Um, but he has he has gone directly against uh, what um, has been what we're calling the Wakamal strategy, saying it makes no sense. You have to have a total lockdown across the country. I mean, this um, continued lockdown that's been imposed in Leicester, for example. Um, people, I've seen people say, well, what if you live in a village just outside Leicester, but you live in the city? Um, conversely, um, you know, I know people who live in Leicester, but work in Nottingham and vice versa. So, you know, what if your boss in Nottingham is saying, well, the lockdown's over now, uh, you can come into work and you have to say, no, I can't because I live in Leicester. <laughs> you know, and I'm still, I'm still under a lockdown. You know, I, as a um, you know, as a trade union official um, working in the health service, um, I'm dealing with a lot of these cases, in fact, where employers are calling, pe- trying to get people to come back into work. Some of them have health conditions, most often asthma. That's why they're calling us, because they're concerned for their health. Um, they've been working from home hitherto, um, but their employers are trying to drag them back in. Um, and there's very limited, uh, you know, options for actually stopping that unless um, someone has a shielding letter. Um, if someone has a shielding letter and some people have got an extension till the end of August. Um, but if they don't have a shielding letter, you've got to, to go through the whole process of holding a grievance. And I think that there's going to be probably a lot of developing case law uh, involving cases like this. But to sort of return to the point. Um, you know, and I actually want to ask Bradley about this um, because you commute to work, don't you? Uh, or, or rather, you work in a different place to to where you live. What happens? And I know you do most of your work from home, but what happens if, say, um, Lincoln goes into uh, a lockdown, uh, but your place of work elsewhere doesn't? Well, I, I suppose I'm not going into work, am I? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm quite fortunate in that uh, I've got quite, quite a nice boss um, who, who would probably be like, you know, don't, don't worry about it and we understand. But the reality is a lot of people won't have bosses like that, will they? Um, and people could potentially, I mean, I, I would find it interesting the legality of it. If, if I suppose that the boss's hands are tied to some degree, aren't they? If someone physically can't get in because of a government order of lockdown of their city, then I, I suppose they wouldn't really be able to fire them for that, would they? I don't know. They might try. This is the and this is this is because there are so few people and this is why I keep saying to people, you know, this is a really good time to join a trade union. Um, you know, I I, I spoke to uh, a chap the other day. He wasn't a member of my union yet, but he was thinking about joining. Um, you know, and he said, 
uh, well, you know, I used to be a member of the union, but I've kind of learned to deal with things, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay, so what's your circumstances at the moment? He said, well, well, I mean, I'm okay because I'm on furlough and I know when that ends. I said, okay, you were put on furlough. The lockdown is ending. And as I just said, there are an awful lot of cases where employers are now trying to take people back into work. Um, you know, that furlough scheme is ending at the end of July. What happens if... Um, you come back to work and there's no social distancing measures in place because that's a frequent problem. You know, they haven't bothered to put in screens or they've just done a vague risk assessment that says your your desk faces the wall, therefore, you know, you're not facing anyone and therefore you don't, you know, that's sufficient social distancing. Um, You know, you need to join a union because you may be able to work things out on an informal basis, but if your employer digs their heels in, um and you know ultimately you know it leads to you getting the sack you need to have someone who can pay for your lawyer when you go to a tribunal can you do that yourself oh no not really okay then you know that's that's the value on it so it's a really good time to to join a trade union it's my little plug if you like join a trade union because you're going to need it for your protection uh which kind of segues quite neatly into what we're going to talk about as, as we know, that um, furlough scheme is ending um, at the end of July. Um, uh, I suspect that we're going to see a wave of redundancies. Um, we saw it at the beginning of the COVID crisis. The um, the sort of coronavirus became, became suddenly everyone woke up to the, the reality of it, that we are suddenly living in a pandemic. There was no word from the government um, about what they were going to do for a long, long time, um, except to say that we're going to close pubs and bars and things. And so the response of lots of pubs and bars was to make them make their workers redundant. And then about a week later, the furlough scheme came in. So there are a lot of people today who are on universal credit who ought not to be. They ought to be on furlough. But do you think, um, Bradley, that we're going to see a repetition of uh, of that uh, at the end of July? Or do you think it's going to be slightly different? It's hard to say. I think I think what businesses really hate is uncertainty. Um, and I think the way the government has handled the crisis has, has been almost tailor-made. It's almost as if they were setting out to create the most uncertainty they possibly could. Um, because we went into lockdown so late um, and have had this sort of staggered half half in, half out ending to it as well, um, we, I think we're going to see more localised lockdowns like Leicester, whether, whether that's an effective way to deal with it or not. So I think it's going to become... And then if you chuck in things like Brexit into the mix as well, I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for, for businesses to be able to predict what, what the next few months hold for them. And I think the response of a lot of businesses to that is is to make cuts as quickly as they can. So I, I think we're, we're probably going to see more layoffs over the next couple of months. Um, and it that is in an environment where, you know, welfare has been, you know, dis- not destroyed, but, but havoc has been wreaked across the welfare state for the last 10 years as well. So, and I think a lot of people are waking up to that. P- people that might have been quite critical of welfare recipients, um, 
a few months ago and have now actually suddenly found themselves using that service and, and understand and sympathise with those people a lot more now. So, yeah, I, I, I do think we're going to see more layoffs. I think we're going to see a lot of uh, uncertainty uh, and I, I don't have much faith in, in the government to, to really to, to support businesses or workers um, in, in dealing with that either. It seems very odd, doesn't it, that um, they put in this furlough scheme. It seemed very, very sensible to me. You don't want people to, to starve. Um, and you also implemented an evictions um, policy as well. Both of those things are ending around the same time. So people are going to be both... There's going to be, let's be honest, thousands of people who otherwise would be fine, uh, who are suddenly going to be both jobless and potentially homeless as well, because it's all in the hands of landlords. Landlords can decide to waive rent if they want, but the government said that they don't have to. If they really insist, they will be able to evict people. Um, What can we see might be the the social sort of outcome from that? Uh, I'll go back to Bradley. This is your political speciality. Um, I don't know. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I'll go back to Callum then. What do you think? I think essentially the outcome of this is going to be a lot of social unrest, um, the economy clearly is not fit for purpose. If if it takes a hit like this and there's no jobs going around, um, it's the whole our whole economy is is based around services now. Since we lost industry, that's all it is. So it, it requires people to spend. But if people can't spend because they haven't got a job, then it's just going to stagnate. Then I don't think that the current welfare system, I don't think the current government, I don't think the current economic system is fit for purpose. We've got to change it. Otherwise, people are going to be left in a cycle of joblessness, homelessness, poverty, because as it currently stands, there isn't a a real solution. You know, the government is propping up certain companies. So let's take the um, British Airways as a perfect example. So they're being propped up by the government. They've been told that they've got to survive. It's the flag carrier of Britain. But at the same time, they're looking to put all of their staff on worse terms contracts. They're making them redundant then offering them a new contract immediately. What we shouldn't be doing is taking this as an opportunity for companies to cut corners. You know, the the classic conservative approach to this is to deregulate. Actually, we should be looking for better protections, better regulations, and ensuring that, firstly, businesses can still function, but also they can function whilst looking after their employees, paying them properly and giving them that proper security. And that comes through the state playing its part as well, not the state saying, well, it's down to businesses for the recovery, which the government has gone on record as saying that this is the time for businesses to step up. Actually, it's the time for us all to step up. It's time for us to step up as a, as a country, look at our government and say, what you've got to do is, is you've got to give people proper welfare when they find themselves on hard times. You've got to invest in things like infrastructure and industry, not just in services. We've got to diversify our economy. You know, the green industrial revolution hopefully will be one of the best things to come out of this crisis. 
And it's, it's necessary, not just for the environment, but also for the economic future of this country. So the implications of this are huge. It, it can impact generations from now if we, do, if we don't get it right. And if we get it right, it could have such an amazing impact. But I have a feeling this government, they're going to bottle it and it's going to be, it's going to be bad for the next few years at least. The thing that worries me is that um, that's, all, that's all nice to say. Of course, I agree with it. But there isn't, I can't see a way that any of that is going to happen um, at the end of the day. I mean, you can, you can look at Keir Starmer and say, look, he's doing a good job. No, he's, got, he's not uh, doing a great job, whatever. To some extent, what he's doing is irrelevant because he's, he's the opposition. The Tories are in power right now. They have material control over the reins of government. And they are going to, quite deliberately because they don't have to do this, create a wave of joblessness and unemployment uh, and homelessness amongst a huge swathe of the population. And that we are, what, three and a half years out from a general election. Um, The last local elections were suspended. The normal, you know, the Labour Party's only just started having, you know, some meetings and so on. The norm, most political parties are probably the same. Trade unions are entirely preoccupied with dealing, as, as I laid out earlier, with, you know, cases in the workplace. The normal avenues for organising and uh, social change are shut down, effectively. Uh, meanwhile lots of people are being thrown on the scrap heap. And when people don't have a way to be heard, what is going to be the outcome of that? What recourse are people going to have? Um, that's, I, I think, and, you know, tell me I'm wrong, but I think this we might see some equivalent of bread riots. I think that's what we're going to see. Because what recourse are people going to have? Uh, other than other than to to throw bricks through windows, I'm not advocating that at all. But you know, we saw that you know people were criticising Black Lives Matter last month, for example. You know, there's all you know all the stuff about Martin, what Martin Luther King said about the uh, that riots are the language of the uh, of the unheard. Well, these the whole population is going to be the unheard. Their elections have been suspended. The normal process of democracy is gone. Am, am I wrong? Do you think this is? Uh, do you think this is? Or, or do you think I'm being alarmist and, and apocalyptic? Uh, I, Callum. Well, I, I, I certainly can actually probably see that happening in in one capacity or another. I, I was certainly going to say in answer to your question that what could happen is that we get a a grassroots movement formed a popular front of some description of people coming together um, to stand up as, as one, as, as we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement, but something bigger, you know, this is, you know, going to impact us all. And, you know, the one thing that people care about the most is themselves at the end of the day. Um, you know, that's what they're told they should do. And now we're at a point where the government is, uh, is throwing them on the scrap heap. So now it's a case of every man for themselves. But actually, what we've got to do as uh, as activists, as people on the left, as people arguing for this better alternative for the future, 
is that we should be trying to organize as much as we can to bring people together to realize that they have so much more in common. Um, certainly now they have so much more in common. They've started to speak to their neighbors. You know, if that can happen, anything can happen. Hmm. Yeah, I think clearly we have to be more visible um, as a movement in really standing up for standing up for uh, people's rights to uh, live, exist, be comfortable. You know, it's um, I, and I don't know if it's going to succeed. I think the uh, in the very short term, I as, if, if you can tell at all, I, I I'm quite pessimistic about what's going to ha- uh, happen in the short term. Um, but in the long run, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we need to be you know, looking forward to how we're going to create uh, greener cities, you know, greener transport, um, you know, how we're going to um, create a world where this sort of thing, we can't control diseases, but where, you know, it doesn't, there isn't a pressure to go into work, um, you know, people, uh, we've got a, a health service which isn't completely gutted and can deal with crises like this. That's what we need uh, at the end of the day. And, you know, it, I think it starts, say, the Labour Party started having uh, local meetings. Um, I think there's some potential in the uh, help groups that are formed around COVID-19 as well, people, you know, um, supplying one another and so on. Um, so looking forward then to how we can start building that sort of society. Um, you had some ideas about uh, how the high street could be supported, Callum, in, in terms of uh, in terms of this long term plan. So, how are you going to save the world, Callum Roper? Uh, well, I think I, I saw a I think it was an article. It was an interesting conversation going on in the week about public transport and about how we can utilize public transport to effectively boost uh, local economies, high streets, um, small local businesses, and and try and keep those jobs in town centers and encourage investment at a time where it would be very easy for people to shy away from investing. And I think, um, obviously, we, we, we spoke about universal basic services quite a while ago now, and transport does come under that. So uh, it's certainly a passion of mine. Um, but free local transport, firstly, we can look at the uh, environmental impact of that. So getting cars off the roads, getting people away from having to drive in will firstly obviously benefit pollution-wise, but it will also decongest some of our roads. It means that maybe we can invest then in putting in segregated cycle lanes because we don't need as many lanes in our city centres. Um, you know, we can start to pedestrianise some streets. So already that's a, a great benefit if we can do this in the long run. But then also we've got to look at the local economy. So Lincoln's a, a perfect example of, of somewhere surrounded by a lot of villages, um, relatively poor rail connections compared to other towns and cities uh, around the country. But its bus network is somewhat patchwork, let's say. It's it's a uh, it's 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 a weird connection of of different bus operators doing all sorts of routes, and the cost of it is not very affordable 
Uh, I remember speaking to a, a lady when out campaigning um, and she could only afford a one-way ticket into town. So she had to walk back after going shopping. Um, so that's, that's, that's the reality that we live in. So by changing the narrative around public transport towards actually we're going to have a positive look on this. We're going to encourage people to use it. We're going to invest in our bus companies. We're going to provide reliable routes. These routes are going to be free. These are going to be subsidized and they're going to be encouraging people to get into the high streets. They're going to be encouraging people to use public transport. And I understand the social distancing factor is going to be difficult um, around buses, but we can run more of them. We can invest in electric buses to, bol uh, to bolster the fleet of, of buses, as it were. We can invest in reopening some lost railways around Lincolnshire. So um, there's recently been a campaign to relaunch the East Lincolnshire Railway, which ran from Boston up to Grimsby. That will connect a whole load of seaside towns back onto the mainline network. It'll encourage people to go to these towns. It'll move them away from just the, the, the staples of, uh, you know, Skeggy and uh, Cleethorpes. And it will, it will see your smaller coastal towns have a lot more investment. So actually, I think public transport, investing in it, providing it free as a basic service, providing it as a service that will not just boost our economy, but hopefully help us in that step towards saving our, our environment. I think it, it, it can only be a positive. And uh, I know it's something that a Labour government would certainly explore. I'm not sure whether the Tories would do it, but I think locally we should be calling for it, you know, trying to get our council to work towards it. In, in, and obviously uh, Lincolnshire County Council is Tory, but city council can be a strong voice and an advocate for that and, and calling for this investment in local public transport to bring people into city centres, which will be struggling. Yeah, it's uh, the very definition of um, build this and they will come, isn't it? Um, because they'll be able to um, instead of not being able to afford to. Uh, the, the backlash against it when you talk about promoting tra public transport um the 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 executive of the county council said well we don't want to do anything to take uh, stop people driving their motor cars most of these you know as if that's the, they're the most important god-given right you know um but it's not stopping people from driving their cars it's giving them a viable alternative yeah, right. And an affordable alternative as well. Exactly. So you can drive it. And it, I've always thought it's absurd, isn't it? Because if you really like driving your car, um, you should support free public transport because that means there will be less cars, which means that you'll be able to enjoy driving. Who likes, unless you really like sitting in traffic, you know, if that's really <laughs> your thing, if you're really into that, uh, I mean, I get it, but like, um, but also I don't, you're insane. Um, it, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe people just enjoy complaining about it. I don't know. Um, but public transport, is, to me, it seems like an easy win. Um, you know, uh, so uh, Bradley, are you ready to sort of comment on this? I know that it's, uh, a green vision is your thing, but, you know, how do you think that we can uh, build consensus for uh, a new world after COVID, after the dust has settled and the virus is gone? I mean, I, I think the, the evidence that's out there suggests that most people are sort of signed up to that vision already. 
Um, if you if you look at you know a, a lot of the policies of the 2017 and 2019 Labour manifesto, they're, they're very popular. Um, more sort of uh, green initiatives, um, the idea of a green new deal, supporting the growth of, of green jobs. Um, that that's very popular amongst public. Uh, higher taxation on on the very wealthy to pay for that sort of thing is very popular. Uh, more investment in public transport, uh, public ownership of the railways, all of that stuff is really actually quite popular stuff. So I, I think the question is less how how do we convince people of that and, and more how do we mobilise people to achieve that, I think is probably more the question. <laughs> A few minutes ago, I'd have said, well, the answer is easy, isn't it? We, we need to get cracking for our, our local Labour parties um, to get them out there in, in the local areas. Um, I, I, in fairness, I will say that because it, it is still true, but it's it's just a bit more complicated now. But, I, you know, we, we do need local Labour parties to be much more visible, I think, in their local communities than they often are. And that, that's not to disparage any, any you know, Labour activists. There's a lot of Labour activists that do a lot of good in their communities. I'm not doubting that for a second. Um, but I think as the Labour Party, we, we need to be running campaigns that, that aren't just uh, council campaigns to, to get people elected. Um, you know, the, the saying that always goes around at election time, we've talked about it on this podcast before, is, is um, oh, well, you, you can't change anything if you're not in power, which, which isn't true. It, it's not how politics and social change works. It's obviously a lot easier if you've got the reins of government and, and local councils. Um, but, but the idea that then you just sit for five, five years trying to, trying to get back into government and, and not doing anything else is just not true. It's just not how politics works. Um, so I, I think... Yeah, part of that is getting local parties much more embedded in their local communities where they're not um, and, and campaigning on things that they can achieve now, even if they're in opposition in, in a local context. I, I think that that probably would have been the end of the matter for me a few months ago. But obviously, one, it's not that easy to campaign when there's a global pandemic on, even if the pubs are open again. So I think we, we need to think as local parties about how we adapt to, to the age of Corona. How, how do we digitize our democracy um at a local and a national level as a party and um, god knows when the next national conference is going to be and um, so, so i think we need to think about that and how can we have democracy democratic and active parties like nationally it, it, it whilst we we've got a social distance i think there is another question for socialists about whether they start looking at putting some of their energy into avenues that aren't necessarily the party as well so obviously we, we've discussed on this uh, podcast before about um the, the shift in direction of the party since Starmer came into power. Um, I, I think if, if we're going to stay and fight and, and change the party, we need to have a coherent idea of what that looks like. So, so I think people on the left need to stop being content with just saying stay and fight and they need to start clarifying what that fight is and, and what it means. Um, but, but also maybe it means getting involved in, in groups that aren't necessarily the party. So, so maybe that... And I think this always depends on the local context. In, in some local areas, groups are stronger than others and it makes more sense to join certain activist groups or parties than it might do somewhere else um but i, I suppose in lincoln there, there's quite an active um, and an efficient extinction rebellion group um the climate commission is being set up by the council um, so, so that's something that, that people can get involved in hopefully when things begin to, to turn to a semblance of normality um, and there'll be other projects as well um, hopefully black lives matter are going to be more active beyond just the protests in, in lincoln and beyond as well so i i think yeah basically we, we need to, to reimagine lo- local politics um, for, for digital social distance to campaigning and organising. Uh, we, we need the Labour Party to be out there more active and, and leading communities. But, and we also need to be supporting other groups like Extinction Rebellion that, that are trying to do good things as well.
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I think that, um, you know, a lot of people talk about Labour parties being quite council-centric, as you said. Um, To me, I think it's about extending what councillors very often do. Uh, Obviously, you get lazy councillors sometimes, of course you do, but most of the councillors I know, they do get involved in local communities and and they they go to litter picks and you know community groups and 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 uh, and, and park re- uh, restoration schemes and all those sorts of things but it's usually just them right um acting as community leaders um i think what we we need to do is sort of extend that and encourage party members to uh, to get involved in that in those sorts of activities themselves, because the emphasis is often the councillors go to these things and they recruit local activists who then get involved in the Labour Party. But we actually need to make it reciprocal. We need to make sure that um, that Labour Party people, people like me, to be fair, uh, who originally joined the parties, I, I joined the party as a technocrat. Um, uh, who you know think everything sh- is done through the normal democratic process and you know top kind of a top down perspective on things people need to realize and learn that actually um, that's not how you build a social movement um it's getting out into your community and helping people and therefore building trust and uh, a, a reciprocal relationship which makes the whole community better it's quite pleased to see that um, momentum, actually, um, which hitherto had sort of been just this organisation which seemed to be there to personally prop up Jeremy Corbyn. Um, It's had internal elections recently that's resulted in a slate of people being elected specifically on a platform um, of encouraging community organising. Um, in, in exactly that sort of way, and I, and I hope that they become the strong, uh, a strong pressure group for that idea within the party. Um, not to sort of uh, denigrate the people who are on the other slate. I think there are a lot of people on that, the, the renewal slate, who I admire, um, and did a lot, did a lot of good work for the party during the Corbyn era. But I'm quite glad that the idea of the of the forward momentum people, if you like, the community organizing, the grassroots campaigning is going to be the main emphasis. Um I don't know what you thought about that, Callum. I don't not sure which side you, you were on in that particular or, or were you even on a side? I don't even know if you're a member of Momentum. I, I'm not a member of Momentum. Um I'm Momentum sympathetic. I did a lot of work with them during the leadership campaign for Rebecca Long Bailey's campaign. Um, but to be honest with you, um, it did need to have this internal um, conversation with itself uh, as to their next step. I, I didn't really take a side. I, I think as, as not a member of, of the organisation, it's not my place to really be um, taking a side. But what I do welcome is is certainly that step towards community organising. I think grassroots, grassroots organising is so important. Um, so many movements uh, recently really have come from the grassroots. You know, the Jeremy Corbyn project came from the grassroots. So the power of, of the little people when they come together should be harnessed and we should be putting it in the right direction. And I, Hopefully, momentum will have a bit of a resurgence and, and we can get a, uh, a strong left-wing slate on the upcoming NEC elections. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a member either. I have been in the past, 
Um, I think I, I joined short, shortly after the original leadership election and I had to ditch it for financial reasons and also because there was no real local organisation. It always seems to me like um, it was uh, it was an organisation for putting out memes and uh, and social media content and so on, which you know was helpful, um, but it wasn't really helpful to me or, uh, in, in terms of local politics. But actually, I'm I'm thinking now that I might rejoin because if they start doing, uh, if they start sort of running seminars around the country, if they start sending people out to CLPs to teach people about how to organise, that would actually be extremely useful. Um, and I'd like really like to be a part of that. So I think that would be very, very uh, a useful direction for them uh, to take. Um, what do you think, Bradley? I don't, I don't think you've ever been a, a member of that particular organisation, but uh, is that a viable uh, way for the left to organise within the Labour Party? Or, or is, is Momentum's time done? Or does it still have life? I mean, I, I, I did join Momentum for a little while. Um, I, I think when I started to get a bit more involved, so I'd sort of been a member of the party for a little while, but I hadn't done a huge amount with it. So when I started to try and get a little bit more involved in the party in the Corbyn days, I, I think I did join Momentum for a short period um, and then just just sort of gave up on it a bit. I think part of the problem with that was that there wasn't really a, a local Momentum group active. So it's hard, I think it's hard to engage with campaigns sometimes if, if they're primarily at a national level for you. I think if there's not people you can meet up with in your own city and organise, it's, it's difficult to, to keep going at something like that, I think. Um, and, and actually, for me, I was like, well, actually, get, going to local meetings and, and organising with some of the people I know within those meetings, you know, yeah, that just makes more sense for me. Um, th- th- those people are two people in this call, mainly at the moment. Um, but uh, I don't know. So obviously, they've just had their internal elections and four momentums what, um, swept to, to power. Um, I think I think some of the stuff coming out of four momentum w- was good. I. I don't know, to be honest. I, I, it depends. For me, it has to be. They have to have a, a focus on local organising and, and, and local groups um, sprouting up. I think. I, th- I think for people outside of London, which, which is the vast majority of people in the party, um, it, yeah, you've got to have a focus on building up local groups. I think that's the only way to, to make any sort of pressure group within the party massively effective and relevant to, to members that are, are looking to try and change things. I think. Otherwise, it sort of just becomes a slightly I mean, I mean, I suppose it's possible at a national level to still win NEC positions and stuff as, as, a, as a purely national group. Um, but I, I worry how long-lasting and embedded that, that change would be, um, if, if not supported by, by local organising as well. Hmm. So things to ponder. I think we'll, we'll see what happens with uh, momentum. Um, local activists should also be pushing for this uh, a more grassroots uh, approach as well, as we've discussed. Uh, the Labour Party is starting to restart its meetings uh, very slowly uh, at the moment, locally and presumably nationally as well. Um, so those avenues are starting to open up. Maybe maybe we can stem the tide of the riots. I don't know. We'll, 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 we'll have to see what happens. We just have to do our best as, as progressive activists uh, to start building the case, uh, as we said, for uh, a more progressive world post-COVID. Uh, so, uh, unless we have any final thoughts, uh, I think we will end it there. Uh, so, uh, that is 
I think that will be goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Callum. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe. Uh, if you do go to the pub, please, please socially distant. Mm-hmm. And Bradley also. Yeah, bye, folks. Uh, as we always say on this, uh, stay safe and, and join a union. Stay safe, join a union, and we'll see you next time.